Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in, in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their slaves bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is his daughter, you shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the, not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with uh, so God dealt with them, with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born in the Hebrew shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we ask as we look at it that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey, and that we might see Jesus high and lifted up. In his name we pray, amen. Well, I'm excited for us to begin a study in the series of the book of Exodus. Exodus is an extremely formative and foundational and important of the Bible. Because it's a story that comes up over and over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. It's a story of God's mo people moving from slavery to salvation, from fear to freedom, from bondage to blessing, from wandering to worship. But it's not just an ancient story. It's not just Israel's story. It's just not a story that, that we can put away and say, oh, this is ancient history. 
It's our story. The Apostle Paul tells us that this story in particular is written for our encouragement, written for our instruction in knowing what it means to be a human and knowing what it means to be part of the family of God. And so as we begin our study in the book of Exodus, it's important to remember that Exodus is book two of the Bible. It's the second volume. And it follows volume one, book one, the book of Genesis. And we need to remind ourselves of a few important themes and principles of the book of Genesis if we're going to understand what is happening and going on in the book of Exodus. Genesis opens with this beautiful story, this beautiful imagery, this beautiful narrative, this beautiful truth and reality of the God of Israel giving good gifts to his world, the gift of creation and all of the beauties and all of the riches of creation, the gift of people, making people in his own image who would be rulers and kings, priests and caretakers, prophets and truth-tellers in his world. And most importantly, the reality that God is the king over everything. God is the sovereign. God is the Lord. God is the ruler over all things that he has made. That this is God's world. That's how Genesis opens. Genesis continues with these leaders in particular, these people that God has has made in his image, who he's entrusted this good world to, rebelling against him, sinning against him, straying from him, wandering from him, refusing to listen to him, refusing to submit their lives to him. And because of their rebellion, a disease enters into God's good world, a a sickness, an evil, a death, a suffering, oppression, bondage, rage, abuse, even murder begins to enter into God's good world. So these good gifts and these good relationships that God has entrusted to humanity are now corrupted. And one question that Genesis wants us to ask, and that Exodus wants us to ask, and that the entire Bible wants us to ask, are things like these. Will God do anything about it? Will God act? Will God listen? Will God hear his people when they cry out to him saying, how long? How long will this suffering? How long will this bondage? How long will this trial endure? Will God repair what's been broken? Will God redeem and renew his good world? Will God act in love toward what he has made? And in Genesis, God answers these questions in many different ways with a resounding Yes. And one of the primary ways in which God answers these questions is by raising up for himself a people, a people through a leader named Abraham. And God promises to Abraham many, many things. And those promises are primarily three. Number one, that Abraham will have descendants, that Abraham will be a people, that there'll be a distinct people amidst all the other nations of the world. 
and that Abraham's children and Abraham's offsprings will become leaders and kings and rulers in God's world. So he promised to Abraham a people, someone who doesn't have a child, someone who doesn't have a people. He says, your descendants are going to be so numerous that you can't count them. And kings and leaders and rulers are going to come from you. Second, God promises to Abraham a land. He says, your people will inhabit a good land. And it'll be a peaceful land. And it'll be a prosperous land. It'll be a fruitful land. And it'll be a place where this kingdom will be nurtured and cultivated. And then third, he says, you will be a blessing to the world. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the promise of people, the promise of a land, and the promise of blessing. And the book of Genesis ends with all of these promises partially fulfilled. God's people... They don't have a land. A land has been promised to them. Abraham's wife is buried in the land that one day will become theirs, so it's partially fulfilled. But God's people are living in a different land at the end of the book of Genesis. They're living in the land of Egypt. But God's people are rulers in that land. Genesis ends so so beautifully with Joseph being second in command to Pharaoh, being a king, being a ruler, being a lord, in the most powerful empire that the world has ever known at the time. And then third, God's people are a blessing. God's people are the ones through whom uh, they are seeking to bless the nations, giving food to the nations, providing for the nations. So the book of Genesis ends with these promises partially fulfilled. And the book of Exodus opens with these promises continuing to be fulfilled. We read in the very first few verses of Exodus, these names. And normally, we're wanting to skip through the names, skip through these hard names to pronounce, names like Naphtali. And we skip through those and say, what on earth do they mean? Why are they here? And we should never, ever, ever skip the genealogies. Because the genealogies are so important for understanding how God is providing for his people. Because what we read in these genealogies is that Israel went down with a certain number, and now that number has been multiplied. That number has grown. That number has increased. Now the land is full of Israelites, full of the people of Abraham. Notice what is said in verse 7. And maybe you'll hear some echoes from what God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 7, it says, the people were fruitful. The people increased greatly, multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was full of them. Great promise, great hope, great blessing for the people of God. God is faithful to these promises that he's made to Abraham. But then look at verse 8. Verse 8 powerfully introduces the problem of the book of Exodus, this problem that we're going to be unpacking for the next few months. Verse 8 says, A new king arose in Egypt that did not know Joseph. 
And this new king has a new agenda. He has new goals. He has new strategies. He has new ways of dealing with the children of Abraham. And we learn very quickly that his ways are to oppress them. His ways are to make them slaves. His ways are to put them into bondage. This is a different type of king. His reign is a reign of terror, a reign of horror, a reign of rage, a reign of destruction. And this king sets out to systematically destroy the people of God in three primary ways that we read about in Exodus 1. First, he persecutes them vocationally. As they increase, as they multiply, as the land is filling with them, he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them slaves. I'm going to make their work hard and difficult and frustrating and bitter. I'm going to become this horrible taskmaster to them. I'm going to oppress them vocationally. And this vocational persecution is astonishing to us on many levels. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, humanity was entrusted with God's world and told to care for the good world of God, told to use the resources of God's world in order to do two primary things. One, to build cities, to build civilizations that would take these good gifts in God's world, things like trees and rivers and rocks and gold and jewels and gems, and use all of these resources that God has given to mankind and mine them and dig them and cultivate them and turn them into cities, cities of love, cities of peace, cities of flourishing, cities of blessing. So God's people, humanity, are called to cultivate cities, build cities. And then secondly, we learn in Genesis chapter 2 as well that they're called to build temples. They're called to be priests in God's world, to care for and cultivate what's been entrusted to them. And so they're called to take the same resources, rocks and trees and gold and jewels and gems, and use these resources to give them back to God, to build things for God. So these are the two tasks that humanity is given in God's good world. Build cities and build temples. Build cities and build altars. But don't build cities and don't build temples for false reasons, for false hopes. And don't build cities and don't build temples to false gods. Don't do it in the wrong way. And now, in Exodus chapter 1, we read that the people of God are, are using all of these good resources, all of these jewels and gems and rocks and trees and, and rivers and everything that God has entrusted to mankind to build cities. We read of the names of these cities. The city of Pishon and the city of Ramses. I noticed something right there. These cities are named after human leaders. These cities are named after human kings. They're not named after God. They're not built for the glory of God. They're built for the glory of mankind. 
And so they're building these cities, but they're building false cities. They're building cities of oppression, cities of violence, cities where people are turned into slaves. And in these cities, they're also building false temples, false places of worship, where they're worshiping not the God of Israel, but they're worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. And what we're introduced to in the very beginning of Exodus is that this is a war. This is a battle between Pharaoh and his gods and Israel and their God. And who's going to win? Who's going to be victorious? Who is going to have the honor and the glory? Will it be Pharaoh's gods or will it be Israel's God? And as we make our way through the story, we see Pharaoh seeking to destroy, seeking to kill, seeking to murder the people of God in order to not only eradicate them as a people, but also to eradicate their God, to be victorious over their God. So that's Pharaoh's first plan. Let's turn them into slaves and let's destroy them through vocational oppression by making them slaves. And we read in the text that as he does this, they actually become stronger. They they multiply more. They increase even more. And so Pharaoh says, well, this isn't working. We have to do something else. Let's enact the second prong to my approach. Let's kill their male babies right after they're born. Let's get rid of all the male babies. Now, Pharaoh's pretty shrewd in this plan. I think we should ask the question, why the male babies? Why not the girls as well? Why not everybody? And why would Pharaoh in particular want to kill the males? Wouldn't he want the males to one day grow up and help build these cities, become slaves to to make these bricks, to uh, accomplish all these big building projects? Wouldn't he want men to help accomplish his goals, why would he only want to kill the men and save the girls? Well, think about it along these lines. One day, these girls are going to grow up, and they're going to want to fall in love, and they're going to want to have families themselves, and they're going to want to give birth to children. And if their only option is Egyptian males, Egyptian men, then the chances of their children one day rebelling against Egypt are pretty small. But if he lets all the male Israelites survive, then maybe one day these men who he sees are getting stronger and stronger, even as he's trying to impress them, maybe one day they'll have a rebellion. Maybe one day they'll form some armies. Maybe one day they'll be able to conquer Pharaoh and his armies. So let's save the girls so that one day they could marry Egyptian men, and that will ensure the security of our kingdom. So Pharaoh is very shrewd in his plan. But just like his first plan failed, this second plan fails. Because we read beautifully of two women who refuse to do what Pharaoh tells them to do. They refuse to kill 
the babies born, the male babies born in Israel. And when Pharaoh finds out about this, you can imagine how enraged he is. And he calls them into his uh, palace and he says, what on earth are you doing? I gave you a command. I told you what to do. Why aren't you doing what I told you to do? And at best, they come up with a half-truth. Well, well, Pharaoh, you don't understand. These Hebrew women, they're, they're so vigorous, they're so strong, that uh, when we're trying to get to them as they're delivering their babies, uh, they just pop them right out, and, and we can't do anything. They're just there, and they don't need us. And so I, we're, we're powerless, we're impotent to actually execute on your plan because you told us to kill them at the birth stool, and... They're not there. The babies aren't there. They're already in their mother's arms by the time that we get there. So Pharaoh says, okay, we'll develop another plan. I've got another approach to eradicating the people of God, eradicating especially the male children born to Israelites. If it's true what you say, that maybe they give birth too quickly, that's all right. We'll go and find them. And we'll put their babies in the river in order to be swallowed up by the animals in the river. We'll let the river eat them. We'll let them be destroyed by water. So notice that Pharaoh has this ruthless plan to destroy the people of God, to attack the people of God, to attack the bride, and the children of God. And honestly, this should come as no surprise to us. Because in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we read that evil is going to try to attack the people of God. The forces of evil are going to try to kill the children of God. There's going to be a war between the children of men, the children of the serpent, and the children of God. And we read right there in Genesis chapter 3 that one day, Israelite women are going to give birth to a son that will destroy and defeat all of the forces of evil in the world. One day, the work of violence, the work of oppression, the work of murder, the work of slavery, the work of strife and envy will be ended by a son born to an Israelite mother One day a child would come and crush the work of evil. And so what evil is doing here in Exodus 1 is trying to stop that and say, if we can get rid of the male children, then maybe we won't be destroyed. And so what we read of in Exodus chapter 1 is that there's a whole lot more going on than just economic oppression or relational struggle or societal struggle. What we're reading about, friends, is spiritual struggle, a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare. And as the story of the Exodus unfolds, one of the questions that we're going to be faced with over and over and over again is who is going to be victorious, Pharaoh and his gods or Israel and their God? Who will win? And the answer, friends, as we'll find out, is Israel's God. And we already in Exodus 1 begin to see his power over Pharaoh in some beautiful ways. We begin to see in Exodus 1 that God sustains and blesses and provides 
for his people, even as Pharaoh is trying to take their life. We see that God raises up people like Shipra and Pua, these two midwives who are going to be protectors and redeemers and deliverers of the people of God. Now, one thing that's fascinating in our text is that we know the name of these two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. And they really weren't anybody in Israelite society. They weren't honored. They weren't revered. They, they had a pretty, uh, you know, low and humble job. And the person that we don't know the name of in our text is Pharaoh, the mightiest, greatest, most powerful person living in the world at that time. We don't know his name. But we know the name of these two Hebrew midwives, these two servant girls. They're remembered and they're revered and they're celebrated throughout all of biblical history. And we learn through this that Pharaoh and his might is actually impotent compared to Pua and Shipra. Pharaoh's plans are powerless compared to God's provision for his people. And we see that God rewards Pua and Shipra as his faithful servants. These barren midwives, in taking this risk to protect their brothers and their sisters, they are rewarded with families themselves. These women who were once childless now have children themselves. God protects them and provides for them. God nourishes them and sustains them in their faith. And as we continue to make our journey through the book of Exodus in the weeks ahead, we're going to see God's ongoing provision, God's ongoing protection, God's ongoing care for his people in lots and lots of ways. And what that should do for us is stir in our hearts faith. Stir in our hearts to follow this God, this God who is far more mightier and far more powerful than the kings and rulers of this world, than all false gods. And as we make our way through the biblical story, we learn that God ultimately provides redeemers, rescuers, saviors for his people over and over and over again until one day he provides the ultimate and the highest and the perfect and the complete Savior in his son, Jesus Christ. And as we read the story of Jesus, a fascinating thing occurs. His story is very, very similar to Exodus chapter 1. You see, in his story, we read that there is a king, a king who is trying to take life from Israelite boys. Not just at the birth stool, but all the way up to three years of age. And we read the irony that this king isn't an Egyptian king. This is an Israelite king seeking to take the life of his own brothers, systematically seeking to kill his own people. But just like in the Exodus story, this king is powerless. He's impotent against God's plans. God thwarted him. God provided for his people. God protected his bride. God protected his children. He protected his very own son. An irony of, of Jesus' story is that he gets sent away. He gets sent away to Egypt. 
And in Egypt, he's cared for. In Egypt, he's protected. In Egypt, he's nurtured. In Egypt, God provides for him away from the horrors of King Herod. And he comes back, back into his land, back to his own people to free them, to rescue them, to deliver them, not from the bondage of a pharaoh, but from the bondage of a much greater ruler, the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, the bondage of evil. So as we make our way through the story, we got to keep in mind that there's a greater story coming, the story of the greater exodus, a greater deliverance, a greater redemption, a greater salvation. To conclude this morning, I want us to think about just a few points of application from Exodus chapter 1. First, we learn in this text, and we see this throughout history, and we see this in our own lives, the hard reality that God's people suffer. God's people suffer. Suffering is a reality for all of us. We don't all suffer in the same way, but we all do suffer. None of us, none of us can or will escape the grip of suffering. Some of us, just like the people that we read about in our text, are experiencing some form of economic suffering, vocational suffering. We have hard taskmasters over us, and our jobs are difficult. Our bosses are ruthless. It's hard to go to work every day. Some of us are experiencing relational suffering. It's hard in our relational life. It's hard to be in relationship with other people. Suffering is a part of life in the broken world. And Exodus chapter 1 encourages you to know that you're not alone in your suffering. The ancient Israelites, they suffered. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, he suffered. God's people throughout all history have suffered, and you will suffer as well. This is good news. This isn't something to run from. This is something to embrace. Our Savior's path to glory was marked by suffering, and our journey to glory is marked by suffering as well. And suffering is a gift for the people of God to mold us and to shape us and to form us into God's image. We are called to follow our suffering God. He knows what it is to suffer. We become like the suffering God as we learn to endure trials. So wherever you are in life today, embrace your suffering as a gift. Let God use it in your life. Let him shape you and mold you through it to become more like him. It's not to say that you don't want to have the suffering end. It's not to say that you want to intentionally embrace suffering. It's just to say, as suffering comes, realize that this itself is a gift from God to mold you and to shape you to become more like him. Second, life is full of what Brene Brown calls foreboding joy. Foreboding joy. And we see this beautifully in our text Look at the joy of these women, of these families giving birth to children. They're multiplying in the land. They're having lots and lots and lots of babies. What is more beautiful? What is more joyful than giving birth 
to a new little one, to seeing new life come into the world. How joyful, how amazing. And then notice also the foreboding part, that death is possibly right around the corner, that there's a Pharaoh who wants to take your baby's life. Foreboding joy. It's a truth for all of us, and we don't experience it maybe in the same extreme that these families would experience it, but we all experience foreboding joy. It's a reality for all of us, and we need to learn how to pursue life with these two twin pillars in mind, that life is joyful, life is good. God wants to bless us with good things. Life isn't all miserable. God is a God who brings joy to the world. And we as his people are to embody that joy and embody that life. But because we live in a broken world, because there's still sin in the world, that joy is foreboding. I have a friend who had said the most difficult day of his life, the the most uh, troubling day of his life. He was in the hospital. And in one room, his wife was giving birth to their firstborn child, to their son. And he was in there so happy, so joyful, so ready to help receive this new life into the world. What a gift. And another room was his dad. And his dad was dying. And his dad was on his very last breath. And he was running back and forth from room to room, one room to go help and encourage his wife, and one room to go pray and have some last words with his dad. And his son and his father passed away on the same day. And he describes this as foreboding joy. Remembering his son's birthday. What a, what a beautiful day to remember. What a beautiful day to celebrate. But then also having to celebrate with this heaviness, with this weight of his dad's death as well. A friend's life is marked by foreboding joy. But God is with us in our foreboding joy to nourish us and strengthen us and provide for us. Third, God responds to our suffering. God responds to our foreboding joy. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't reject us. He doesn't leave us. He comes to us. God is near the brokenhearted. And what we see in Exodus chapter 1 and what we see over and over and over again throughout the book of Exodus and through the entire Bible is God comes to his people. God comes to be with his people, to live with his people, to dwell with his people, to rescue his people. The book of Exodus is about God's presence with his people. Exodus 1 is darker. It's God's presence with his people in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial. But Exodus is all about how God comes to his people to respond to our suffering, to protect us, to act on our behalf. And fourth and finally, God uses you. God uses us to alleviate suffering in the world. We're not just people who suffer. We're people who alleviate suffering. God always raises up people to care and protect and provide for others. People like Shipra and Pua. People like my friend who is one of our students at Vita House, the ministry that I'm a director of. 
through Vita House, we're privileged to work with lots and lots of young leaders in our city who are serving our city in some pretty amazing and powerful ways. And one of our students is a girl who is an immigrant. And on her journey from Guatemala to the United States, she was kidnapped in Mexico. And she became a slave. She was trafficked. And she was separated from her family for 11 months. And then through a series of, of God's kindness and God's providence in her life, not even knowing uh, this at the time, she made it to the States and she found her mother in Houston. And through a ministry to immigrants, she became a Christian. The very first Christian in her family, she says the very first Christian really in her village. And God's been at work in her life to, to grow her, to help her to know his grace, even in the midst of great suffering in her own life. And God has sent her back to her village in Guatemala several times. And on one occasion, she had the opportunity to talk to her grandfather, who was the tribal leader, the tribe's witch doctor, the one that everybody looked to, the, the leader of their community. As he was dying, she talked to him about Jesus and the reality of, of faith in Christ the Lord. And God, through the Spirit, worked in her grandfather's life to, to bring him to faith and to bring many in her village to faith as well. And she's now helping them to get into a church and get plugged in. She's helping to send uh, leaders from the United States and, and other places to go to her village and to have teaching and training and continue to do evangelism and discipleship. She lives here in the U.S. She's learning. She's studying. She's figuring out what it means for her to be a missionary in God's world. And one of the things that she does is that she works through a human trafficking organization here in Austin. She who was trafficked, she who suffered in this way, she who endured things that we don't want to talk about, she is now going to other women, other girls like herself, and ministering to them in Jesus' name. And saying that God is with you. God is going to bring deliverance, rescue, salvation to you. And she's part of their story. Not only do we suffer, we help alleviate suffering in others. She shared at a recent event that I hosted her story. And that she said that she's come to realize that her identity isn't in her nationality or her hope to one day become a U.S. citizen. Her identity isn't in her suffering and all the horrible things that have happened to her in her life. She said her identity is in Jesus. And that that's the thing that is sustaining her. That's the thing that is molding her and shaping her and orienting her in her life. And friends, the same is true for us. No matter what we've faced in our past, no matter what we've done in our past, no matter what's been done to us in our past, the offer of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, is that your identity is in Jesus and that you belong to a God who knows you and loves you and cares for you and enters into your pain, enters into your suffering to redeem it and then gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can go into his world and enter into the suffering of others and be his light and his life. So as we journey through the book of Exodus, remember this, 
God did not abandon his people. God did not forget his promises. And God has not abandoned us. And God has not forgotten us. He is with us. He is for us. He loves us. He cares for us. And we're going to learn about his care and his concern for his people in beautiful ways. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that even in the midst of great suffering, even in the midst of great trials in your good world, that you act, that you send rescuers, you send protectors, you send redeemers, people like Shipra and Pua, but most importantly and most ultimately, your very son. I thank you that by his spirit, you're sending us out into the world to be people to help alleviate suffering, to help undo oppression and violence and injustice. For this, we need your grace. For this, we need your mercy. So please shower us with your abundant grace that we might be people of the exodus, people who belong to you and no other. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.